1922 of the Church Bibles, and it is Revelation chapter 9, starting at verse 1. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth and were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon. The first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that released the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year, and they were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops were 200 million. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were like fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflicted injury. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. This is the word of the Lord. No challenge then. <laughs> to quote uh, Aldous Huxley, the most distressing thing that can happen to a prophet is to be proved wrong. The next most distressing thing is to be proved right. 
although John would have had no doubt, had been thrilled to see the visions of heaven, some of the events to come must have been quite a challenge. So we're continuing our journey through the book of Revelation, and this week we look at the consequences of trumpets five and six. Now, I don't know whether in an orchestra, trumpet five and trumpet six must be well down the pecking order, but these are quite awesome uh, trumpets. There's a lot to cover in this chapter, and you'll be glad to know that I've significantly edited my talk, um, otherwise you wouldn't get home tonight. And it would be helpful if you had your Bibles open, uh, just so that you can check what I'm saying, and uh, we'll attempt to unpack this message for us today. But first let us pray. Dear Lord, we pray now that you will enlighten us with the truth you have for us tonight, the truth of your word, and cast aside any falsehood or irrelevant interpretation so we might be more effectively prepared and informed for your service. Amen. So I thought it would be an idea to first recap on where we are in our study of this important book as its complexity can be a bit off-putting. The first three chapters, which include the messages to the seven churches, cover the past ages of the church. They are messages of encouragement and chastisement to the faithful from John, who's got his feet firmly planted on the Isle of Patmos. Although using symbolic language, the message is quite clear and you get in Revelation some of the interpretations of some of the symbols. But the message is clear. We should keep our faith, the excitement of our young love, and to persevere. It changes again in chapter 4, where there's this big change, where John is now invited to come up to heaven to witness what is to take place. So from here on in, we have the end days described I'm convinced that this book isn't to be used as an appointment diary of events to come or a chick heading to the last days. But it is warnings and encouragement God wants to impart to his people uh, so that he can give us reassurance of his overall plan, the fact that it's unwavering, unwavering and that he's in complete control. So amongst what we, the world sees as despair and chaos, we have the confidence that God is in control. We are encouraged and excited about the magnificence of heaven and the worship and the majesty and the sheer overpowering glory of our God. Surrounding this throne room, we have the Lamb, thousands of angels and strange creatures. However, in chapters 5 to 8, we have, a, we have the scroll judgments, which herald some uncomfortable predictions, which are the start of what is sometimes described as the Great Tribulation. Those faithful who come through that tribulation are rewarded by being in the presence of God in white robes. The horsemen of chapters 6 bring war, famine, and pestilence followed by persecution and upheaval in nature. The seventh seal announces the next stage of the tribulation, technical jiggery-pokery in that, 
And I thought, I wonder if there's a good picture of seals and angel and seals and trumpets. And uh, I came up with this. <laughs> Apparently, there's a, a, a Russian seal that uh, can play the trumpet. <laughs> I don't think that that's very helpful, though. So. Two weeks ago, Matt unpacked chapter 8, which covered the first four trumpet judgments. These continued with ever more uh, plagues against the earth. The effects of the seals and the trumpets at this point resulted in a quarter of the population of the earth killed by various means, as well as a third of the earth was burnt up, a third of the seas, fish and ships, I have to say that carefully, destroyed, and a third of the fresh water polluted. At the end of chapter 8 provides the exciting introduction to tonight's chapter by saying that if you thought the first four trumpets were bad, wait for the last three, announcing it with woe, woe, and thrice woe. You can remember that. So arriving at chapter 9 now tonight, we come across trumpet number 5, which starts with an account of a star which has already fallen to earth. Um, uh, You can get on the internet all sorts of strange pictures of stars falling from the heavens. Um, Whether or not that's exactly what we read in in Revelation, I I don't really know. Stars, though, in Revelation tend to be interpreted as angels. Different commentators offer various opinions on whether this is a good or bad angel. But I suggest that falling to the earth is not the most dignified entrance for an angel of light. So the deposed angel has arrived on earth with the keys to the abyss. These keys are then used to unleash those within the abyss to cause destruction. Now it may seem strange that God has allowed this angel to hold the keys to the abyss, However, this is not without precedence. I was reminded that in the book of Job, where we learned that Satan was given authority to test Job, always remember, Satan and those that do his bidding are ultimately under God's sovereign power. They cannot stray beyond God's authority and control, despite what they might tell you. And what do we know about this abyss? This is not hell, The only other mention of the abyss in the New Testament is where Jesus seems to be a temporary holding place for demons. It's not their ultimate destination, as this will be revealed in chapter 20. I was reminded of when Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and their families went down live to Sheol in Numbers chapter 16. But Sheol isn't the abyss either, as Sheol was the place for departed spirits and not demons. Sheol was also called Hades in various parts of the New Testament and has already been mentioned in Revelation chapter 6 with the fourth horse of the apocalypse. We will see later in the book that this too is a temporary holding place for the dead. It seems quite challenging to me that demons that have been confined to the abyss, perhaps where all those exorcised spirits have been driven, are now let loose. What is puzzling, though, is that they leave the elect alone 
and target the unbelievers. So we're at verse 4, and we see that they're instructed to leave alone those with God's seal on their forehead. This was mentioned in chapter 7 with the 144,000. However, I believe all the elect will be marked years ago when technology might catch up with this prophecy. And I, I did think about how uh, you have chip and pin. We've even got dogs now with chips in them that uh, are signs of identifying people. Maybe that's to come. But my interpretation is this mark is the mark of baptism and or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes to the Corinthians, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So we should draw comfort from those verses, especially as we are starting to appreciate what is to come. This is also reminiscent of the Passover, where the plagues of death, where the, the angel of death passed over those houses that had a sign on the door. This trumpet judgment and the following one are on the unbelievers who stubbornly do not repent of their sins. So who comes out of the abyss? We're at verse 7, and we see strange warlike creatures, which are clearly described in symbolic terms. Horse-like locusts, thoraxes, which is what the Greek word is, wings and scorpions' tails. But their task was not to kill, but to, to torment. That's... Uh, a lot of uh, locusts there. That's, that's what a locust head looks like. And uh, I was struck by the, the pictures of, of people in uh, bio suits and the like. Maybe that's one way in which this plague might discriminate between different people. So may I offer some interpretation of these symbols? Unlike locusts, these myriad demons were commanded not to touch vegetation. Exactly the opposite of what these earthly voracious appetites will consume. They were commanded not to kill. Incidentally, for those of you that have really been doing their homework, you might question why they were told not to harm the grass. Because you will know that the, at the first trumpet angel, he saw off the grass. But actually, it specifically said the green grass. So the emerging blades and the ripened grass grass are spared returning to the locusts oh that's that i've got these in the wrong order haven't I? <laughs> returning to the locusts unlike natural locusts which swarm these have a scorched earth type of desolation and would you believe that in uh, algiers in 1866 they had a plague of locusts that was so devastating that 200,000 people died of starvation that's how destructive these things are. So I wonder what sort of event would result in this sort of outcome, where this, de where this demonic army doesn't kill, but torture, and they selectively leave alone the servants of God. Their commission was for five months, which is the typical lifetime of a locust. This doesn't seem to me to be a description of any conventional army. 
Death is just around the corner now for a third of mankind, marked by the sixth trumpet. This precedes the command to release the four angels bound at the river Euphrates. Again, my interpretation is these are fallen angels, as I don't believe angels of light need to be restrained. And their task is to kill a third of mankind, which brings the rolling death toll now to a half of the Earth's population. So these events will not go unnoticed. The significance of the Euphrates was this was a boundary point for the promised land, and also it represented where the Roman Empire stopped. I'm struck that around this location is the, where the Garden of Eden's hidden as well, and we're told that they have a cherubim and a flaming sword to guard access to the tree of life. More of that in chapter 22. So keep, keep on with Revelation. You get some uh, wonderful things near the end. So we have to plough through all these uh, plagues of judgment. Note that these angels, these four angels, have been prepared for the very hour, day, month, and year. In verse 15. To possibly lead an army in excess of 200 million. Now there's been much speculation about the size of the army. For instance, I think... Uh, um, Chairman Mao once reported that he had an army of 200 million but I don't believe that the purpose of these visions is to provide us with clear markers of what we need to watch out for. The point is that it's an overwhelming army but not as we know it. These mounted troops for instance are fire-breathing horses with snake tails and this army is commanded to kill a third of mankind by three types of plague, red fire, blue smoke, and yellow sulfur. I was thinking that that fits the text, actually, is uh, this fire that took place in, uh, in Iraq, which was a, a sulfur, um, sulfur mine, and uh, it caused a great deal of fire and smoke. I'm not suggesting that that's the point of, for Revelation, but these things do happen. But the most chilling point about this passage is that the unsaved aren't swayed by these events and continue in their idolatry and sin. We have until chapter 16 before it's too late for them. So I'd like to conclude this study of Revelation chapter 9 with some thoughts on what it actually means to us now and how it might affect us which is ultimately, I think, the purpose we have for studying this book. Studying Revelation continues to remind me that God is in control. He has ordained, commanded, and set a time to bring all of creation back to the way he intended it. And for the reassurance of those who have died in his service and for us, justice will be accomplished. So we are to take encouragement that he will judge and avenge the blood of the saints, and ought that to be a comfort to our grieving brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka. We should ignore our God-given commission to look after creation. But this book shows that despite all our efforts, the earth, seas, plants and humans will be devastated. So it's no surprise that we see similarities in Revelation and the news such as brought to us by David Attenborough. 
those who have abused their inheritance will be called to account. And I guess for the community of the redeemed, we should repent and confess any contribution we have made to the overall problem. It's what Paul described in Romans as creation groaning, waiting to be released from its bondage to decay. The big difference between us, though, and eco-warriors is what motivates us. It's not because we think we can save it from final destruction, because this book tells us that's not on the cards. So what should guide us? When we started our trip in the, in, through the morning sermon series, or through the favorite Bible stories, we started off by covering the creation story and saw in Genesis that God man, gave man the authority to rule over the earth, to fill it and to subdue it. He was giving us the earth on lease in the Jewish law give us a template for our stewardship of this planet. We have the Sabbath principle, not just for us, but for our animals too. There was to be a seven-year rest for the land, and there was restoration of the land to the tribes in the year of Jubilee. The land was not to be sold permanently, and the produce was to help needy neighbours too. You can see all that in Leviticus chapter 25 if you want to do some homework. And I think I've put that in the home group uh, leaders' notes as well. So these are general principles to adopt in our stewardship of his creation. The planet has not been provided as a resource for us to consume. And finally, for those who do not repent or cease to worship idols, there is agony and death to come. Maybe this alone is a motivation to share the offer of redemption to our unsaved loved ones. One day, heralded by a trumpet blast, it will be too late. Something to ponder. Well, we'll have to wait two weeks now for the seventh trumpet to announce the seven bowls of judgment next week in chapter 10. So let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you are a loving and merciful God. We pray you would forgive us when we spoil your creation with our thoughtless consumerism. We pray you would create in us a new heart and make us worthy of the seal you have placed on our foreheads. In the name of your Son, the Lamb upon the throne, Amen.